all of God's word from beginning to end is life-giving and powerful. And so it's very difficult uh, for pastors to choose what the next series is because it's all good. So as I've been praying for you and your families, you know, and thinking about how to launch into 2022 after last Sunday, which was the first Sunday where we always sort of celebrate the epiphany and all of its glory and what it means. Um, I've decided that for the next number of weeks, we're going to spend our time in First John. And the reason is really more pastoral, because I thought, what kind of a voice do we need at this point with everything that we are grappling with? And it occurs to me that First John is a letter that's coming through the voice of this old, grizzled apostle who's got the been there, done that, survived all manner of suffering t-shirt. And he's got this affection for this young church and he calls them little children because what he, what he wants under this growing shadow and darkness of Rome and all that it represented was that for this young church to have strength and joy and encouragement that's pervasive in the midst of everything that they are grappling with. And I feel like we need this voice uh, in the midst of all of our impatience or frustrations or sorrow or anger or worry about the future Uh, We need that voice whispering in our ear, uh, I've been there, and you're going to make it through this. And of course, that voice is the echo of our Heavenly Father and of Christ himself. So this morning, we're going to start 1 John chapter 1, the first 10 verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testified to it. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with God the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him and we declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's word. This letter is very practical. And John has a literary style that kind of circles around and he revisits things. So my pastoral disclaimer is that over the next number of weeks, 
this very, very short letter, we're going to keep circling around things. Because that style, that literary style, is intended to get us to be very contemplative and reflective and to go very deep into the significance and the meanings of what is written. This is an epistle. It doesn't fall into the category, you know, classically of wisdom literature. But it is wisdom literature because his, his stated purpose is that our joy would be complete. He wants the church to be able to live with joy in difficult times. And all throughout the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, things get repeated. But they, and they circle around, but they go deeper. It's like looking at something through a prism that is casting various colors and light. That's what the gospel is like. That's what God's word is like. That's what this letter is like. You can read this letter in 10 minutes at home, and I encourage you to do it multiple times over the next couple of weeks because it's very short. But what was going on in Rome in 80, 90, you know, when this, uh, uh, ish, when this was written, between 80 and 90 AD, a lot was going on. But the, but the letter isn't this monstrous treatise, you know, like Augustine's City of God, where it's like a 700-page where John has not said, okay, I understand it's 80, 90, and the shadow of Rome is getting strong, and the church is really grappling with a lot of stuff. And unless you're, unless you're willing to really circle around, and as believers, go deep into your own heart and mind as to the implications of the glory of Christ, the implications of the gospel, if our joy is to be complete, what is blocking my joy? If we don't do that, then we'll just kind of look at this and go, well, this is a pamphlet. I think you missed it, John. That would be the response of, it, of an immature believer being the recipient of this letter in 8090 with everything the church is going through. And then can you imagine just getting the word, the Apostle John has written us a letter. And the church is like, well, thank God. Everything we're dealing with. What, wait a second. This is the, this is the letter? So let's dial in. That's my pastoral disclaimer. Because week after week after week when I say, let's go to the Word of God, and I say 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it's not because I'm phoning it in. It's not because I'm turning 47 this year and I'm just going to start repeating myself more and more because I'm getting old. Although that is true. I ask not. So as I said, John is old. He's, he's almost as old as a letter. So he's in his 80s. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. But in his old age, he's not angry and cynical. That's not the tone of the letter. He's not angry and cynical. In his old age, he is wise. He's full of joy. And he has a joy that cannot be drained. It is similar to the Apostle Paul's letters where he writes from, a, from the, 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 uh, the Roman jail to Philippi. He has a joy that can't be drained. So this is, a, this is a theme in the life of the apostles. They've, they've grabbed something. When, when the world is melting, they're like somehow they have a buoyancy in their soul. And that's the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is like, what happened today? What does my news feed say? Well, well here's how I feel about it. Joy is a buoyancy in the, in the soul. It doesn't mean that as we mature as believers that we become stoics and nothing affects us. It's ridiculous. Christianity is not stoicism. We feel deeply. We can grieve deeply. You know, Jesus wept before he raised Lazarus from the grave because he was looking at 
the decay and the result of sin and brokenness in the world. So he felt deeply, and the apostles felt deeply, but joy is a buoyancy in the soul that we don't just slowly sink and then sink into what everybody else is sinking in. But slowly but surely, the soul, the heart, the mind rises with this joy that is rooted in the gospel. So that is his goal, his stated goal. It's in verse 4. He's like, this is why I'm writing this. That your joy would be complete. Complete in, in, the, in the Greek is pleres. And pleres means to be continually retained, to fill what is hollow. So Christian maturity doesn't look like, I talked about it not looking like stoicism. It also doesn't look like a weird plastic happiness. Where you're out of touch with what's going on and just smiley all the time. I'm writing this so that regardless of what begins to draw your soul down, you have a means of filling it back up. And in that sense, this is a very practical letter because he's going to unpack a number of spiritual disciplines that we all ought to have operating in our lives regularly because the means of getting our joy replenished is through spiritual disciplines. He's going to unpack a bunch of them. Today we're going to focus on uh, sin, the confession of sin, or the inability to confess sin or see sin. That's one of the spiritual disciplines, this confession of sin. But beyond that, he's going to talk about love for the people sitting in the chairs next to you. Or what it looks like if you could care less about the people who are sitting in the chairs next to you. And after that, he talks about love for brothers and sisters. He's going to talk about loving the wrong thing, namely the ways and the wisdom of the world. You got the wrong mentors. You got the wrong rabbis. There's a click track in your head defining your ethics and the way you think about things, but it's the wrong voice. He's going to get into all that. He's going to get into false teaching about Jesus. Namely, Gnosticism, which is a way of saying, oh, I have secret knowledge that's saving me. Oh, all of you plebs that are into sort of like this mainstream gospel? Yeah, well, I've discovered these secret links. And if you'll just follow me this way, you know, don't trust all that. Just trust me as I go down my secret links of Gnosticism to, to teach you. And so they, the Gnostics would unpack who Jesus was in a very sort of trivial way. He's not the Son of God. And the reason why all of that matters, of course, is because if you, if you, if you don't get Jesus... And you don't marvel at Jesus if you're not continually in, on, in an ongoing way blown away by the glory of Jesus. You can't mature as a Christian. It's impossible. He's going to get into spiritual disciplines, but look at where the letter starts. It doesn't start with spiritual discipline. It starts with gospel vision. Because vision, I'm sorry, because discipline always follows vision. You're going to hear me say that a hundred times in 2022. If you do not have a gospel vision, there's going to be no lasting energy for spiritual discipline. Those of you who've raised children already and they've moved out, you're nodding your head at me right now. Because you have to cast a large vision that is captivating and beautiful and inspiring and attractive so that your children say, yes, this 
the glory of this gospel, of who Jesus is, of what he has done, the implications of what he has done, is so majestic. How can I not want to forsake my sin, cut this thing off that is not like him, and live to the glory of my Savior? So he starts with this massive vision of Jesus. Look at the first three verses. That's how he starts this treatise to his little children. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. Letter, not treatise. It's so short. And so you can imagine that first church being like, we've got to go over this again. We've got to go over this again. We've got to go over this again. So that we can have our hearts captured by what has captured the apostles. So that regardless of what is happening in my life, I don't just sink into sadness. But my soul is raised with this buoyancy into joy. That I am actually willing to forsake my sin and live to the glory of my Savior. Because I can actually see my sin by the power of the Spirit and desire to live to the glory of my Savior. So this is how this all begins. You look at verse 4. I mentioned this earlier. This is his goal. His goal is that we would be re- repeatedly filled with joy because we live in a world that repeatedly drains joy. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to come back to it. And you're going to hear this again in a num- number of weeks. I'm going to come back to it. The world will always drain our joy. Spoiler alert, you get to chapter 5, and he makes a provocative statement. He says, we are of God. It's like certainty in his voice. We are of God, and the world is in the control of the grip of the evil one. And it's this old grizzled apostle way of saying, the way in which you look at the world and understand the world and set your expectations on what should be happening in life is going to have a tremendous impact on your joy. And if you expect the wrong thing... If you expect the world to go in a direction that the Bible explicitly says it's not going to go in, though there will be beautiful moments and bright spots, but it is, it is ultimately not going to go on this trajectory that you want it to, you're going to constantly be in a, in a fragile state of having the joy drained out of you. And so the apostle desires that our joy would be full. That means we have to have the expectations uh, correct of the world that we're living in, that it would all be full. And so this is the tone. That, the tone. That's why he uses the Greek word pleres, which means you will be well supplied. In this world that is constantly draining your joy, you will have a means of being replenished with joy. That is, if you'd look to the Savior and not some other little mini-Messiah and make that your Savior. And the other reason it is important for us to recognize as Christians as to why he says, I want your joy to be complete. That assumes something. It assumes that as day by day and week by week uh, go on, Christian maturity is not going to look like not needing to be filled. So it puts us in a very humble posture. This should humble us to be like, you know what? I am going to need to be continually replenished because I burn, <laughs> I burn through joy. So where am I going to go then? See, this is all flowing into his conversation about sin. Don't worry, I'm going to get there, and then we're going to revisit it for weeks. But before we, get, before we even get to sin, what is it? What is my sin? What do I do with sin? Can I confess my sin? Before we even get there, we just have to realize that the reason why there's sin is that the joy is constantly being sucked out of us from the world that we live in. And so we're gonna, we will, as human beings, go someplace to fill that gap. I have this old car, and it burns oil. So every once in a while, I check the oil, 
Because I, I know it's down on oil. I'm not shocked. I expect it. And not only do I expect it to be down, there are certain kinds of oil you put in the engine, and there's other things you don't put in the engine. I don't just go to the store and grab the first oil I see and put it in the engine. And, and so this is why he moves from, I want your joy to be complete, to this conversation about sin. Because if you don't understand, if you have the wrong expectations of the world, if you have the wrong expectations of your own humanity, that I'm supposed to you know, put my faith in Jesus, and so now I'm going to be uh, fine, and maturity looks like I'm always fine, and immaturity looks like I'm not. The moment that there's that deficit gap, sin is so easy. Oh, I'm not feeling so joyous. What can I do to, what can I do to top myself up? We were made to run on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> if I could use that sort of, sort, of, sort of super religious language. I mean, we are made to be f- fully f- flourish and be fulfilled in the goodness and the love of God. And I know that seems like really like impractical, but it's actually quite practical. And we're going to get to that. And so you can't run your life. You, can't, you cannot replenish your joy. Your joy will not be complete by putting anything else in there. A substance, a person, an activity. See, that's why when, when, I, when, I, when I get to the conversation about sin in a second, I'm not going to take the remainder of the service to sort of like pick three sins and preach on those. Because that will infantilize the church. Because I could pick three. You could pick three. Like, we have, we have praise God, we have a new believer with us. Kim and I have conversations over Zoom and we're walking through different scriptures and, and uh, you know, praise God, we have a new believer with us. But apart from uh, our sister, Kim, the rest of you are not new believers. You can, you can go numerous places to find lists of sin. And none of those lists of sin are ever comprehensive by the apostles. And the reason they're not comprehensive is because if I pick a couple, you know, the top three that always hit, hit the, 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 the pulpit... Let's talk about sin. Porn, sexual ethics, greed. I'm going to hammer that for 45 minutes, then we all go home. All of you who have an insane challenge with the seven things that are abhorrent to the Lord in the book of Proverbs, we all leave church like, whoo, man, really dodged a bullet that Sunday. It's a great teaching on why pornography will destroy my, my mind and the way that I... See, my brothers and sisters, that was a good sermon, but whew. You know, then we pray the prayer of the Pharisee. Praise God, I'm not like that guy. And then we go and gossip and whatever. Do speak words that are not full of grace to the, to the hearer. Don't care about the people sitting next to you. There's a thousand ways we can sin. And so this whole letter, which is very short, starts with the majesty of Christ. Because he's casting a huge vision. Because in the same way that I'm not going to go home today and text my adult children who live in Toronto and Oakville and say, did you brush your teeth? Did you go to church today? I am expecting that the years I spent explicitly teaching them what to do and what not to do, in the, I'm expecting that they would have grown into those disciplines. And the, and the apostle is inviting the church into like deep introspection. As to where do I go and what do I do when I feel that joy deficit and I'm like, this doesn't feel good. Something's got to top me up. What is that thing? He starts with the gospel. 
Because the gospel is good news. The life that we live in light of the gospel comes through the scripture's good advice. And we would do well to not confuse good advice with good news. Because if you, conf- if you confuse the good news of the gospel, which is where he begins, before he gets into the advice, your, your joy is always going to be sucked out of you when you make the message of your life good advice, and then people don't take your good advice. What do you think the message and the mission of the church is? It's to proclaim the good news. But if we're bored with the good news, and we're not interested in going into the city and sharing the actual good news, and we bypass that and say, actually, what I would be personally more comfortable with is if this city was a mirror of my ethics and that they would live by my good advice. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about how we ought to live in light of Jesus and expect people who don't know Jesus to live like they do know Jesus so that I feel more comfortable because I'm a person who does follow Jesus. Guess what's going to get sucked out of the soul of the church in Canada? Joy. Because nobody is interested in our good advice. So Paul, I'm sorry, so John starts with the gospel and he blows this thing out so massively. But by the time you actually get to chapter 2, he's covered like 10 monster doctrines. This, this first one is like the doctrine of the incarnation and the significance of God has come into human space. Now I've been, you know, pastoring this church for almost seven years, but I've been doing this since I was 20 years old. And for a, a, a great portion of my life, I, I, I don't know how necessarily blown away I was by Jesus. But since becoming blown away by Jesus, I've come to realize that is the driving force behind the spiritual disciplines of my life. That is the driving force behind, as a dad, wanting to train my three, three kids, and the, or the one who's left at home, to walk in the wisdom and the ways of God, to forsake their sin because of this monstrous vision for the goodness of who Jesus is and what he was, which gets us to verse 2. Verse 2 is this conscious possession of the eternal life. He's like, if, this, if the church is going to hate their sin, forsake their sin, confess their sin, and live to the glory of their Savior, they have to have a, a conscious you know, wonderment about eternal life. And here's why that's significant. It's like, it's like you getting an inheritance for $100 million that's a for sure thing and it belongs to you and you get the check from the lawyer and you put it in a drawer and you say, that's amazing, and you never deposit it and you never make use of it. Is the inheritance yours? Yes. Can the inheritance be taken away from you? No. Does the inheritance matter day to day? No. Is it having any impact on your joy day to day? No. If you, go, if you come into difficulties in which that $100 million would be helpful, but you're making no access to it, does it have any bearing on your life day to day? No. So the apostle starts with the marvel of our inheritance. In this short little letter, again, Rome is popping. Things are happening. Domitian is in charge. Six, let's just pin this to history, the things that he could have been around. 64 AD, Rome burns for six days. Nero blames the Christians. Right? Half of Rome is like, kill the Christians. 
Christianus ad leones, Christians to the lions. So that's going on. But the other half of Rome is like, hashtag not my emperor, cancel this guy. Nero did it. And you can read Roman antiquity and like they're blaming Nero. They're like, Christians did not do it, Nero did it. And so Rome is crazy. That all happened 64 AD. This is 30 years later, after all that tumultuous stuff. Domitian is now the emperor. It's getting worse to be a Christian, not because they're feeding you to the lions, but because they're systematically pulling you out of the public square. By the time you get to the third century under Diocletian, we're not there yet, but we're getting there, and you can already see it in the water, what's going on is, oh, you're a Christian? Take away the scrolls. Burn the scriptures. Oh, you're, oh, you're a Christian and you're in public office? You lost your job. And this is what's happening by the time you get to third century. The letter to First John, it could have been 100 pages. Okay, if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do that. If this happens, if this happens, if this happens. He's like, guys, if you're not gripped by the big vision of Jesus, there's going to be no power to exercise the spiritual disciplines in your life to top up the joy. So let's move on now as we look at um, verses uh, uh, 5 through 7, where he talks about walking in darkness and walking in light. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, Preacher, you've been talking for 25 minutes about the glory of Jesus, and now you're going to ham-fist walking in darkness, walking in light into like two minutes? I mean, do you have any ideas how many times, do you have any clue how many times I'm going to revisit this text? Many times. Relax. And so this, this idea of walking in something is, it's the lifestyle, it's the habits, it's the adoption of values, it's, it's the implications of your education to walk in something. The, the, the Hebrew idiom, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, something that they taught in the Hebrew uh, education system. To be covered in the dust of your rabbi was to walk in something. It meant you're walking so close to your teacher, the dust is kicking up off the sandals and you're covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because you're walking so closely, you're wanting to emulate the applications of their lives. And so... He uses this language. He's like, if, if you're going to walk in darkness, every Christian sins. You sin, I sin. We all sin. But this here is, is stronger than just you've sinned, I've sinned, and we've confessed our sin. It's like, it's like a one-off failure, which you and I are basically doing daily. This is stronger than that. This is like you're walking in something. You're, you're, you're saying that you believe in Christ. And you're naming the name of Christ. And you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, but it's the wrong rabbi. You're, you're covered in the dust of somebody's teaching, but it's not biblical teaching or scriptural teaching. And he's provoking the church right at the beginning. He's like, again, it's coming right after this massive picture of the glory of Jesus and casting this huge vision for what it could mean uh, to be a follower of Jesus. As he calls us to consider this, notice that after he makes that comment of walking in darkness and in light, he doesn't give this comprehensive Leviticus-length list of sins. And why doesn't he do that? It's because he wants the reflection and the meditation of the church. He wants it to think. Who are the predominant voices in our life? Who is crafting the way that I think about life? Who is my savior? And am I living to the glory? It's like this picture of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family, and as a result of this, we grow into our adopted values. 
And so then he comes into this exercise of the confession of sin. We're going to revisit this for weeks to come, but I'm going to just close this morning by saying this. When we come to the confession of sin, it is then, it is, it makes us humble and kind and loving and patient towards the people sitting in the chairs next to us who are struggling with sin in different ways. And then it makes us kind and humble and bold to preach Christ, not bypass him and then just preach the ethics of Christ. Nobody cares. Christ in the city, they would come to the saving knowledge of him. The confession of sin, it humbles us so that we can truly love and care. It invites us into the holiness of God, what it means to begin to emulate our Savior because we, we become more like Him. We read the text in the earlier confession today when God discloses His holiness in Himself. He, said, he says to Moses, I'm too holy, you can't look at me. And he passes by, says, look at my backside. And he dis- discloses Himself by saying, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness. It's how he describes himself. So that you and I, our maturity looks like hating our own sin. Seeing it, discovering it, walking in the light, having the light expose it, hating it, hating our own sin. And then a posture of love and mercy and gracious and patience. The people, the sinners sitting next to us, and then going and being ministers in this world. But before, before any of those spiritual disciplines are going to have any power, we've got to sit back and, and wonder at the glory of the one who has taken away our sin of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.